This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to I'm So Obsessed, where we talk with actors, artists, and creators about their work, career, and current obsession. I'm your host, Patrick Holland. My guest is Asher Perlman. He's a comic, a cartoonist for The New Yorker, and an Emmy Award-nominated writer for The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. Now, since this is an audio podcast, and we talk a bit about Asher's cartoons, we've linked them all in the summary for this episode. Also, this interview was recorded in early June over the internet with Asher in New York and myself in San Francisco. Okay, man, so it's been a long time since I've seen you. You've, you have a lot of things going on. You're a comic, you're a writer, but the thing that's really caught my attention is you make, you're a cartoonist and you have cartoons for uh, The New Yorker, which is, an iconic magazine and iconic for having these amazing cartoons that are usually just uh, like black and white uh, drawings. And um, I just want to start at the basics. How did you become a cartoonist and how did you get to be drawing cartoons for The New Yorker? Well, I mean, first of all, thank you for looking at them. It just means the world. I, I grew up loving cartoons. My dad is an artist. So we had cartoon books everywhere in the house. And I always loved them. I always loved Charles Adams, who obviously got his start in The New Yorker. But then even outside of that, sort of the classics of any 90s kid, like The Far Side, Calvin and Hobbes, Foxtrot, all, all of those. So I, I loved cartoons growing up. And I never pursued it professionally, I think partly because it didn't even occur to me that I could. And at some point a few years ago, I got it in my head that I would like to start cartooning. So I did just sort of as a hobby on Instagram. And I, then I, I went to a party, I guess, and I met a New Yorker cartoonist. And uh, his name is Jeremy Wynn. He's very funny. And I had never met one before. And I, and I guess in my head, it was just something that six old people did and had been doing forever. Yeah, sort of out of character, I asked him if I could buy him a coffee. And I, mean, I did like the classic networking question. I was like, hey, can I buy you a cup of coffee and talk to you about this? And for some reason, he agreed. And he basically walked me through it. And then I, I created one batch, somewhere between five and 20 cartoons. And I submitted them to, to The New Yorker. He took me into the office and introduced me to the editor. Obviously, none of them sold. And I was like, okay, well, maybe this was just sort of a fun thing. Uh, once the pandemic hit, all of my live shows went away, li like a lot of comic performers. And so I suddenly had this burst of free time. And I'm not someone who handles it well. So I started drawing cartoons and submitting weekly batches to the New Yorker and that was the longest possible answer to a very simple question but did it did it at least get close to it <laughs> I mean I was hoping to be I like drawing <laughs> me you like know? pen me like paper <laughs> me me like paper and draw um do you remember like what he told you about as 
a cartoonist that were like, yeah, I could totally do that. Or like, oh, wow, that's that's a little scary. Do you remember anything of that conversation? I mean, I was kind of starstruck because I had seen his cartoons before. I just didn't know who he was. I mean, I knew his work. So I was probably a little too intimidated to fully have my, my brain working um, and solidifying memories. But I do remember him saying probably the best piece of advice was draw the cartoon you want in The New Yorker, not what you think The New Yorker wants you to draw. And that feels like just good advice for any kind of creative pursuit that I've found in my life. Just stop trying to shoot the bullseye that you think they've prepared and instead, you know, draw your own and hope they like it. So I, I think that that's, that's good universal advice, but it was really good advice for cartooning specifically. Well, and then I want to go back to that first batch you submitted. You said it was a bad <laughs> batch. Uh, and not, we're not trying to promote like the Star Wars show here, but what a, what's, what makes a good batch versus a, a bad batch of cartoons? Wait, is there a Star Wars show called Bad Batch? <laughs> there <Okay>. is. <laughs> uh, of course, you're, this is on CNET, so we like we we do cover like uh, I always call it like nerd culture, but uh, yeah, there is, there is, and it's uh, quite a good show. And I do think I actually think it's oh, animated, yeah. which is even funnier. <laughs> okay, what, what, <laughs> and we're that, gonna that, have... that's what I meant when I submitted my first batch to the New Yorker. It was the animated Star Wars show, Bad Batch. <laughs> they greenlit it immediately. It was like uh, cartoon. We don't do animated cartoon or animated shows that are half an hour long. No, but what about what makes a good batch of um, cartoons versus a bad batch. Do you, I mean, besides the fact that you were new to it, or was that the only reason? I should say I also am opposed to labeling any any of my art or anyone else's <laughs> art good or bad. And, and when I teach classes, I always encourage people to not think of things as good or bad. But that being said, it was a bad batch. <laughs> I think I think a lot of it was that I was just new to it, and and feel like this is common amongst any kind of new skill. You, the things that you think of first are also likely the things that a lot of people think of first when they first start doing it. I definitely had one cartoon that was two bears hibernating in a cave. And one of them was, there was an alarm clock and one of them was saying like, oh, oh just, t just three more months or something like that. So it was just like mathing the just a few more minutes conversation onto hibernating bears. And not surprisingly, I think, one million people have also thought of that cartoon because when you think of okay i'm going to be making a cartoon i have talking animals a lot of times these take the human experience and map them onto animals and um so just because of that a lot of people are going to come up with that bear cartoon and so i think just a lot of my jokes early on were predictable and it feels like predictable is not a good place to be <laughs> comedically do you think of this as a cartoon or do you think it as as expressing a joke? It, it really does seem like The New Yorker has two components. You have the visual and then you have that one line or maybe two sentence caption. And I'm wondering like, how, how are you able to approach that? Not only creating it, but also how do you find your own voice and style within that very defined The New Yorker style? I personally think of cartooning the same way I do any kind of joke writing. I, I've been working in comedy for years now, so the the idea of writing a joke wasn't wasn't new to me but the idea of writing a joke where part of it is a visual element was new so i mean but but i but if you if you break it down if you were to sort of do the the science of the joke or break down the math of it they're all still set up punchlines sometimes the image is the setup and the caption is the punchline sometimes the caption is the setup and the image is the punchline and sometimes the line is a little more blurry than that but it's it's 
still fundamentally the same idea. You set an expectation and then you break it. I know a lot of people come to cartooning as illustrators. And I wonder, I would be curious to hear their answers. But coming coming to it from a writer's background, with a writing background, I, I thought of them exactly the same. So, I mean, my brainstorming process is all written. It's just writing what I consider jokes and then slapping them into the, finding the drawing afterwards. There's such a defined style of those New Yorker cartoons. How do you find your own voice and style within that? Because they are they do differ depending on who's drawing or, or, or writing them, you know? Yeah, and, and just like any established comedy place, there's going to be sort of an acceptable range of jokes. And what you bring as a new contributor you might be pushing those boundaries a little bit, but there's only so much you can push it before they say, hey, this isn't what we do here. Like if I, if I submitted a YouTube video, they'd be like, this isn't a cartoon. What, like, what are you doing? We don't want Star Wars, the bad batch. We don't care how much money it's gonna make. God, he's gonna make a fortune, <laughs> but I can't be behind this. <laughs> like promoting a show neither one of us has we watched. We all know that our, our favorite shows, the bad batch, Star Wars animated show. I'm the creator. I'm one of the voice talent. I am uncredited. Uh, that's a whole union thing. Um, no, but I also, I, I think um, uh, if it's okay, I, I have no idea. This is an audio podcast. I would like just to, to share a couple of the ones. I, I like a lot of the cartoons you draw, and I always look forward to seeing them, especially usually it's on my Twitter feed, I, I find them. Um, but I wanted to do my best and get your reaction to some of these. And one of my favorite ones is... Uh, it's like a, a bar and there's a guy walking toward a jukebox and the caption says, oh my God, he's going for the jukebox and the guy's wearing a fish t-shirt. And um, uh, I love it for a thousand reasons. What has the reaction to that been? And um, were you surprised by how, how it resonated with so many people? It's funny because that was my first experience being memed. I had never had that experience before, but <laughs> after I posted that, one of my friends was in a um, he was in a Facebook group for fans of some very specific hardcore band that I can't even remember the name of, and he said, "Hey, didn't didn't you draw this?" And he sent me the same that same cartoon, but someone had photoshopped that specific hardcore band's logo on the T-shirt, and I was like, "Oh, weird. I wonder how it got there." And then it was only later when others started rolling in where i realized that it actually sort of made its way to all these little <laughs> like niches on the internet where uh some some of them were better known bands like aphex twin or the grateful dead or something and then there were bands that were putting their own logo on the guy's shirt and then sharing sharing it ironically <laughs> that was a wild experience and i i loved i loved watching it take on a new life Okay, so then another one, you have two Godzilla monsters who've just leveled Chicago, and one of the Godzilla monsters says, you can't do that, Stan, this is Chicago, and the other Godzilla monster is putting ketchup on a hot dog. Um, I obviously love that so much, um, but it also feels like one of these things, it kind of hits at a bigger a, a bigger cliche and the ridiculousness of the, the two monsters. I don't know if it's Godzilla, I don't want to get like sued Kaiju, like they're that. Kaiju, um, you can't say they're <laughs> Kaiju, there we go, Godzilla. Kaiju, yeah. Because we could say Star Wars Bad Batch yeah. all we want. Disney's no, no, not they care, are the but, Olympics yeah. Committee and Disney. <laughs> <laughs> so we should be fine, no lawsuits. Uh, no, but in all seriousness, uh, what was the reaction to that cartoon and uh, or if you could share like a little bit of where that came from. That was actually one of one of my early sales t to the New Yorker, and I was 
so a little surprised they bought it only because I didn't know that the no ketchup on hot dogs thing in Chicago was well known enough. I, I mean, I submitted it obviously hoping it was, but uh, yeah, it turns out people actually <laughs> know that. But I, I love Chicago. It's where I came up. It's I spent you know ten years there, and uh, it, it just felt I really liked having paying an homage to my comedic home in a new in a magazine named after my second comedic home that that felt that felt really nice moving on a lot of people still subscribe to a physical hard copy of the new yorker magazine do you remember what it was like the first time you saw your cartoon actually published in that magazine my wife framed uh framed the the cover and the the cartoon that was inside of it i mean it's i i say this i'm pointing at it and no one can see that because this is audio only, but, I'm, but it's a doctor talking to a guy who ha, is in a chair uh, with having blood drawn. And there's a lot of bags of blood behind the doctor. And he's saying, wait, how many gallons are in a pint? This is a classic, <laughs> classic old master. But I, I remember when that when that ran, I felt I was truly beside. It's one of my, my favorite moments of my adult life. And then ever, ever since, every time a new one ran in the magazine, I, I would keep them because I'm like, oh, I got to keep these physical magazines. And I do think there's something special about print media that I hope, st- I, I hope for future generations sake that print media sticks around because I, I do think there's something different about holding it. What is your process like for writing it? Do you have like a certain time of day you write or draw? Or are you just are you constantly like scribbling ideas? Is it like uh, more disciplined as, as you've done it more? The cartoons that arrive in my brain fully formed are welcome at all and any time. And I will write them down and draw them later. Uh, but in general, I'm a huge proponent of structure and routine as the method for churning things out just because inspiration has it's just so sporadic that i think it's i can't count on it so what i do is have you ever read the artist's way the julia cameron book very yeah i've it's only i've ever read it it's something i i constantly give friends who kind of feel like they've gotten to a place where they're not creative or they're you would call it like maybe writer's block where they just don't feel like they're creating at the level they used to okay so we're on the same page that's exactly how i use it and i've recommended it to people in this in the same boat but she has sort of the tentpole exercise of that book is morning pages which are three freehand free association writing every morning and I used to do that just sort of the, the, the way she, she prescribes it, which is sort of uh, judgment-free. You never reread it. It's just to shake the cobwebs off your brain. I hope I'm remembering this right. Since I started cartooning, I have adapted that process to be a little bit more targeted. So every morning I, do, I still do three pages, and they're still handwritten, and it's still pretty free associative. But... I am deliberately trying to brainstorm cartoon ideas. So what I do is I wake up about an hour before I normally would and try to do all my cartooning in the morning before before work, just because that's what works for me. I know there are some people who are like, I don't think about it at all until Sunday night and then I draw for seven hours. And um, that just doesn't work for me. I need to spread it out. So every day, every day I do a little. Well, and I'm curious too, because you, you, you write and that is a job and the cartooning is also a creative act. That's a job. And I know for me, when I was like writing theater and stuff, it would kind of come from my heart. And when I started doing more journalism stuff with CNET, 
I found it hard not to like, how do I process this Samsung announcement PR thing through my heart? It's like, you just got to learn how to technically do it. And I'm curious as you've been doing both, do you feel like the passion for that's still there, but now you rely a lot on the technique and the discipline you have from just doing it so much? I think that that's a really good question because I've sort of done this my entire life where I'll find something that I'm, I, th I think is very fun and creatively fulfilling and exciting. And then all of a sudden I'm finding a way to mon monetize it. <laughs> and um, I do think that you, th you have to work harder to keep it fun and exciting and, and passionate. I mean, one of the reasons I started cartooning was because I wanted to create, this was in Chicago when I was performing every night. And I thought, I want, I want a creative outlet that doesn't feel career driven, that feels more like something that's for me, uh, that, that's more pure, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. And then fast forward and all of a sudden it's become part of my career. <laughs> and so I, I, then I'm left thinking, okay, so now I need to think of something else that is that I can do for pure creative reasons. And I'm sure once I do, I'll find a way to pollute it with <laughs> greed. But um, <laughs> I mean, I, th I think that's the, that, is, that is sort of a, a, such a fundamentally challenging thing. And I don't have an answer for it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, so Asher, the name of this podcast is called I'm So Obsessed. What are you currently obsessed with? Okay, this is cheating because the thing I'm obsessed with is cartooning. Oh, into the podcast, <laughs> turn it off. But it really is because I, I, I don't know about you, but I, I used to follow uh, on Instagram, my feed ended up being, it, I mean, there's a lot of friends and everything. It was, it was nice. But once I found cartoonists on Instagram, it totally changed the, my, my life. I mean, it's so much more fun to look at all the So if, if so, here's, here's my tip. If you're not following cartoonists on Instagram, I do think it is. So the, I'm just gonna throw some names out. Brendan Loper, Ellis Rosen. I already mentioned Jeremy Wynn, Navid. There's a lot of, I'm, maybe I should give you a list, but the, it's, it truly cleanses the timeline. It's very nice. Do you want a non-cartooning answer? Because I can think of one. No, I like that answer. Unless you want to, if you want to have a riff, you can you can definitely do it. Uh, sometimes the riff is a better thing. The one, the one other, I was this was the thing I was going to say. I'm obsessed with. It's going to sound like I'm biased, and and I might be partly. But there's a humor writer named Reuven Perlman. He is my twin brother, but I'm also obsessed with him. I think he's one of the funniest humor writers out there. He's written a lot of pieces for the New Yorker, and we're working on some things together. So if you haven't checked out Reuven Perlman. Go, go on, uh, he's on Twitter and everything, but also, yeah, if you go to the New Yorker website, you'll see some fun stuff he's written. Wait, wait, I know you had a twin brother, but he seriously also works for the New Yorker? He, he oh my gosh, wait, uh, yes. So he, we, I started, I got into humor writing a few years ago. I submitted a, a bunch of pieces to McSweeney's and to the New Yorker, and I was rejected a ton of times. Then my brother, who doesn't work professionally in comedy, decided to start writing humor pieces. 
He submitted a piece to McSweeney's and immediately got in. And then he submitted a piece to the New Yorker and immediately got in. And now he's become a regular contributor to both. And it's truly, and he deserves <laughs> it. They are all very, 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 very funny. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad it did, but. You know, you know what that sounds like? It sounds like that uh, uh, that Spike Jones movie adaptation where Nick Cage, you know, Nick Cage plays the two characters and one's like the very artistic, driven, passionate writer who's adapting the book. And the other's like, yeah, I took this like, you know, this con like uh, this like weekend uh, convention on how to write a, a movie and he does it and the whole time his subplot is his movie is like selling it's all the cliches you would never put and his brother's like you know dealing with all that it feels like a little yeah, bit of he's that the successful brother. <laughs> <laughs> you talked about Chicago a little bit you went through Second City in Chicago which is famed for producing comedy writers and comedy yes. performers what was your time like there and how does that that work in the the stuff that you learned there and got to perform there and do how does that inform the work you do now it really laid the foundation for everything that I've done ever since. I mean, all of the, I think Chicago is such a great comedy city and specifically a great improv city. And every writer's room that I've written, that I've worked in since, I I have felt the importance of the, the, the lessons I learned in Chicago. I mean, something as simple as, and people say it, throw it around all the time, but something as simple as yes and makes you so much more fun to work with and and an easier and someone easy to collaborate with and I, I i honestly don't know if i could do what i do if it wasn't for my improv training it just it just trains your brain to to work in that way so i know sometimes when you're doing something like improv it doesn't feel like it directly applies to anything else and it kind of feels like this ephemeral thing that's made up and then gone and to some extent that's true and i don't think that's a bad thing but I also think it can really set you up for success later. All right, I'm, I'm going to mention this now, and then we're going to talk about it a little bit later. Is yeah, you and I used to work at an Apple yes. retail store in Chicago, and I don't know if you remember this, but we used to joke that you literally could just like throw a phone through the store and hit someone who's studying improv in Second City <laughs> in the head because there's so many people um, who worked at Apple who also studied at Second City. You remember that? It was like comedy, music. It's everyone had some creative pursuit outside of work. Uh, like film yes, and writing. Yeah, a lot of, yeah, of writing. Know. Yeah. Um, and I guess the same thing is true. Like New York, before UCB left, it was the same thing. Like you couldn't go on a Tinder date without someone saying, hey, I'm, like, I'm taking level two at UCB. <laughs> yeah, that's so right. Uh, let's just talk about the fact that your day job is you're a staff writer at The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. How long have you been working there? I'm coming up on on my fourth year. So I, I, I moved here to work on another show called The Opposition, R.I.P. Very fun late night show. Yeah, but yeah. Short, I didn't know. I... It was a short run, but I really I stand. I think it was really good. Um, and then that was 2000. 17 to 18 or something and then after that I moved over to the late show and have been there ever since and I, I really love it and obviously the show is like famously it's filmed at the Ed Sullivan Theater can you just uh, share what it was like the first time you got you showed up there for work like what was it like walking into that space I was bowled over I mean I I had I, anytime I go to a place that I've seen on a screen <laughs> for years I mean it's just so strange to see um, to see anything live that you've only seen on tape but that the Ed Sullivan Theater specifically is so gorgeous because it's it's an old Broadway theater 
and it's been around for I don't know how long, but for I've been around down here ever. <laughs> it's like a really old, <laughs> it's a really old theater, and and uh, the architecture is uh, they they maintained it really well, and there's this beautiful glass dome at the top of the theater. So if you're ever in New York and you're looking for something to do, I really do think attending a taping of the Late Show is is fun for the show itself but also just to check out the historic building it's very nice you and the writing staff on that show have been nominated for three emmy awards what's it like being nominated is it like an honor as as much as everyone says it is i would say it's an objective measure of my worth as a human and as an artist (laughs) i mean of course it's of course it is definitely an honor and uh it's been really fun to uh to yeah to attend the emmys and um yeah, so I, yeah, I also recommend that. <laughs> I recommend. So, so I got it. So, uh, go to the uh, uh, Ed Sullivan Theater in New York, and then uh, get a job where you get yes. nominated for Emmy, so you can attend yeah, the those Emmys. Are my two, okay. Those are the two things. Good. I think these are, are ambitious uh, uh, goals you're setting out for people, but I, I like it. And then um, I also want to talk about the future because you, you talked about you, you do workshops on cartooning. I feel like you kind of teased something on Twitter about a possible animated thing am i am i miss did i did i misremember no, this you remembered it correctly it's an animated project I, ca- I can't really say much about it so it might not be an exciting answer but it's an animated project centered around a character named eugene who has popped up in a handful of my cartoons and people related to eugene have have, have also popped up and there's sort of this eugene universe um that's just kind of this gentle old schlubby bald guy with a mustache and uh, yeah, so I, I can't really say much of what it's going to be, but um, but I'm I'm really excited about it. And a- a- animating is much harder than <laughs> than drawing. Surprisingly, creating a moving picture is harder than a single still picture. But um, yeah, no, it's gonna be it's gonna be great. Watch this space. So we always in our interviews with a thing called pick one. I give you different choices and you select one. It doesn't mean the one you select is better than the one that you don't, but can we play pick I would one? Love to, I would love to pick playing over not, over not playing. <laughs> <laughs> I realized what you just did there. All right, so the first one I have is Itzhak Perlman or Ron Perlman. Oh my pick gosh, one. I'm gonna go Yitzhak. Oh, that's, that is the right answer. Because my grandpa's I mean, name was Yitzhak. Not, he was not the Yitzhak.